Safe for Breakfast podcast, and I'm your host, Phil Coover. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a Chicago-centric commercial real estate podcast utilizing attorneys, finance, and real estate professionals to create thoughtful commentary on current real estate issues, helpful descriptions of common legal and business issues, and entertaining discussion. This podcast is a mixture of real estate business and law. How do the listeners reach us? If you listeners are particularly interested in a certain topic, I want you to feel free to get in touch with us by contacting us at solutionscenter at satcltd.com or by visiting our soon-to-be-up-and-running website, realestatebreakfast.com. Who produces the podcast? podcast is produced by SATC Solution Center, L3C, which is the Education Development Division of the law firm Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, LTD. I'm an attorney and principal with the firm. I've been the firm since 2005. Since this is our second episode, I'd like to start with some feedback from our loyal listeners. And when I mean our loyal listeners, I'm talking about my wife. I love my beautiful wife, and she has a little bit of constructive criticism after the first episode. And I take her constructive criticism to heart because she's an excellent public speaker herself. She's even done a TED Talk on pregnancy rights in the workplace through the TEDx Oak Park Women's uh, Group. So really trust her advice. And what she, she suggests is I should spend a little bit more time setting up the guest and why who the guest is and why what the guest is talking about is important because a lot of the people that are really focused on the real estate market in Chicago might already know things and I assume a little bit about what everybody knows. So let's start with our guest today. Our guest today is going to be Rob Walters of Quattro Development. And I know I've known Rob since I was a young man, young child actually, and why is Rob important? Well, Rob and his partner, Mike Lyles, were crazy enough to start a real estate development company in 2008. People don't seem to remember just how bad 2008 was from an economic perspective. People were literally walking around wondering if the ATMs were going to stop dispensing cash. Bear Stearns collapsed. That was an enormous financial institution. For those that don't remember, that would be like if Bank of America just closed up shop tomorrow and you couldn't go to the ATMs. I mean, it was insane. So Rob starting a real estate development company in a time when there was no financing or lending available was uh, a very atypical thing to do. But I think that it succeeded. And and Rob will tell his entire story. And I don't want to step on his story too much because you'll you'll hear it in the interview or steal his thunder. But I think that Rob succeeded because he had to. It was out of necessity and also because he's very clever and he really knows what he's doing and super sharp. But I think that it's an interesting story and I think that's one that should be told. And I also think that Rob's approach to development and how he selects his parcels and his company and his partner Mike uh, is unique and you can benefit a lot from it. Rob is also a great speaker He's very charismatic, and he he gets invited to speak at a lot of industry seminars. He just recently was a guest speaker at ICSC here in Chicago, which is the International Council of Shopping Centers, which is uh, one of the major uh, industry trade groups. So, Rob, that's why Rob is going to be a great listener for you to listen to, and then also. Just Rob is, buys a lot of outlots. Outlots are also known as out parcels, and those can be Olive Gardens, McDonald's. I'm just giving you examples of tenants that are usually in there, but it's usually a 
smaller parcel or an outlot that's closer to the road and is up closer to the road where the main shopping center, the main retail strip will be set far back. So you might have your Olive Garden or your McDonald's, or your Burger King or your Chick-fil-A and then step back from the mall. There might be a big parking lot and then in some green space and then a strip where there's some other bigger tenants or smaller tenants as well, like your Targets or your Foot Lockers or something like that that's over in the strip. And I point this out because as a tip to you owners and developers looking to purchase outlots is I'm sure that you already have the approach to figure out how much it costs, what your rent is that's going to be generated from it. But I'd also encourage you to do your due diligence on some of the legal documents that underlie the property because when you're buying an outlot, you're not just buying, and this actually goes for every parcel of land, you're not just buying the land, you're buying the land subject to restrictions that have been placed on it and subject to obligations that the parcel owes to the surrounding parcels. So you're going to want to review the title and you'll hear Rob talk about his due diligence because he's very sharp at this is that he will actually go to the recorder's office. Luckily, a lot of it is now available online and he'll look at the underlying legal documents. Uh, and oftentimes what you'll find is something called a cross easements or Declaration of Covenants and Easements Agreements, or uh, they're called CCRAs, and different variations of those scary-sounding legal terms. But what it they say is they describe how that outlot relates to the major shopping center. And you that outlot might owe money to the other shopping center because somebody is probably taking care of that parking lot, and somebody's plowing those the parking lot and taking care of the green space. And so you're going to want to factor into your financial picture the amount of money that you're going to owe and the other obligations that you owe the surrounding parcels. By the same token, there may be buried within those legal documents restrictions on what you can build on that property and how you can operate that property. There might be a restriction on the size of the building, whether that's square footage or height, and there might be a restriction as to use. You might have a parcel where there's a document that says you can't put in an Italian restaurant on your parcel, and that might be because there's an olive garden two blo- or just down the street that whenever the person developed the olive garden, they put a restriction on this parcel because they used to own it or that was part of the deal. And so... There could be all sorts of restrictions on this, and I would just encourage somebody who's looking to buy it to not just look at the price and the amount of rent that's being generated, but to try to analyze these issues for two reasons. One, you want to arm yourself with knowledge so that you can go into negotiations, because if there's a restriction, it's going to be harder to retread the deal after the deal is made. If you come to an agreement on purchase price, but then you find out your lawyer, when doing your due diligence, finds out these restrictions that make your property property less value, valuable, it's going to be harder to retread the deal and harder to get a reduction. So you want to arm yourself with that knowledge going into negotiations. And secondly, you're going to want to engage counsel early because sometimes these restrictions can be alleviated. Sometimes you can pay the other surrounding. You can either obtain their consent 
willingly because they have incentives to do so or because you're offering them compensation to waive that restriction or you might find be able to navigate um, a way around the restriction somehow. So you're just going to want to engage your attorney early in the process because alleviating these restrictions, if you want to do an amendment to the existing documents, it just takes time. So I would encourage you, if you're purchasing an outlot, to uh, review those underlying legal documents to engage counsel early and to try to arm yourself with as much information going into the negotiations. Well, moving right along, we're going to head right into the Rob Walters interview, but I want to point out that this is a two-part discussion, so we're going to break this into two parts, and at first, Rob is going to talk about his story and how he got his development company up and running, also his approach as to how his company uh, sources their labor and approaches finds deals across the country and then we're going to break it into a second part and we'll talk about that at the start of part two thank you so much hope you enjoy a little bit of an introduction. Rob is a co-founder of Quattro Development. Rob was born in DeKalb, Illinois, as was I, birthplace of Barb Wire, Cindy Crawford, and the Northern Illinois Huskies. Rob worked right out of college. Well, he went to University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. Rob, what did, you, what did you major in? I majored in finance in the business school. Very nice. And then right after college, went on to Insight Real Estate from 2004 to 2007 before leaving to start Quattro Development with his partner, Mike Lyos. Since March of 2007, Quattro has developed over 60 properties in 17 states for a variety of national retailers. Rob spent eight years in the Army National Guard, leaving as a first lieutenant. He lives in Chicago on the border of Logan Square and Bucktown with his wife and two daughters. He has intense civic pride and enjoys teaching Sunday school to high schoolers on the west side at River City Community Church. He's also an avid runner and will log over 2,200 outdoor miles this year. So to add some color to that very delightful bio, I grew up with Rob in DeKalb, Illinois, and we always knew Rob was a little bit of a contrarian, a little bit different, but uh, in high school, I remember his senior year, they almost didn't let him graduate because he would skip class to go watch Cubs games and just take off and just miss class, even though he had like a 3.9 GPA, and, uh, but... He just, he was always moving on to other projects. And then right after high school, Rob went to the, uh, the Army National Guard who's stationed in Germany, right? Yep. Where in Germany? I spent uh, about three months in Heidelberg and then like four months in Stuttgart. All right. And then you came back and you went straight to University of Illinois in Champaign, right? 
Rob actually graduated, so I went straight to Illinois, but then Rob came back and he joined up with our fraternity and he graduated in three years. So he caught up to us, even though he's out serving this country for a year. And I knew Rob was on to better things. We would be planning uh, fraternity parties with uh, sororities and Rob was day trading. So Rob had got a little stipend from the military. And so we're, we're trying to figure out what to do next for college and just having some fun. And Rob's up in his room at the fraternity, just trading stocks and options. So I knew at that point, Rob was moving on to bigger, better things. And then right after, as we mentioned, Rob worked for Insight Real Estate, where I... You started with your development roots. Correct. And then you started Quattro in 2007. Now, what what got you going with Quattro? Why did you and Mike Lyos decide to break off and start your own firm? Yeah, um, from 2004 to 2007, making money in the retail development business seemed uh, extremely easy. I got brought on to Insight Real Estate to be sort of a dirt dog, going out finding uh, land sites for build-to-suit clients. Um, But at the time, I think uh, the strategy at Insight was changing where they didn't so much have uh, a lot of build-to-suit clients per se, where, you know, we found a site, uh, you know, for a blockbuster video, we bought it and built it. It became more, uh, you had to have the right site to get the tenant. And so, um, Mike Lyos and I both worked there together, just started driving around the country, looking for retail sites, um, going to ICSC's meeting tenants. And, uh, you know, we put together 10, 11, 12 projects. I think most of them were pretty profitable. We saw how profitable they were and thought, how hard this can, how hard this can this be, um, you know, to do this? If we can go out and find easy you know, peasy, yeah, one or right. two of these a year, uh, we'll make more money than we're making now. We'll be able to set our own hours, and um, so yeah, at, uh, March or April 2007, we left with a one-year non-compete, uh, which essentially we decided. Sit it out for a year. You know, we were actively looking for opportunities, but we didn't do, get anything done during that year. And as you know, that was the year where we went from uh, life being a party to, um, you know, there's really no development done in 2008, 9, and 10. And that's when we were left trying to get our company off the ground. So it wasn't uh, the easiest thing in the world. Wow. Unbelievable. I didn't realize you had to sit out a year. And then so you started a development company in 2008, right when the real estate market was going to hell. Right. Um, it was funny because we literally for a year or two were some of the most active ground up developers on the retail side in the country. And we were doing three projects. Um, you know, it just said a lot about the the market, but the nice thing is our name got out there in the industry, um, because it was like, wow, they're actually doing something. They're getting something done. Uh, a quick anecdote about, uh, like the first loans we got done. We were trying to get construction financing for three single tenant build suits in Tennessee, you know, with, with, uh, pre-leasing in place. And we went to one bank and they gave us, uh, you know, a term sheet and we signed it, went down the road and, the economy was gradually getting worse. They backed out. And then another bank, same thing. They backed out. We didn't even know 
that could happen. You know, we just thought you go to a bank, they give you money. So we ended up going on this road show in Tennessee, meeting, I think, 40 banks, just kind of door to door. Yeah. And we finally got a commitment letter from one bank. It was called Clayton Bank and Trust. It was started by a guy named Jim Clayton, who grew up as a sharecropper, sharecrop farmer's son in West Tennessee, um, rags to riches. He he built a manufactured home business, sold it to Warren Buffett, made a billion dollars, started a, uh, a bank, sold that, made more money. And so we started this bank, Clayton Bank and Trust, and it was a not-for-profit bank. Every dollar that he made, um, in profit, he gave back to the community or different nonprofit organizations. So, this one bank we find, we meet, we meet with the loan agent. We're talking for a few minutes. In walks Jim Clayton. He's got his biography. He autographs it, gives it to us. Says, "Oh, we'd love to do these projects." And so, you know, down the road we went. Uh, the day before we had to close on the first project, I was supposed to also be leaving for my honeymoon, and I get a call from the loan officer saying. Rob, uh, I don't know what happened. I he said I effed up. Uh, we can't do these deals. And I'm sitting there like, you know, here's the, it was literally it would have been the end of our company if they if they would have backed out. And so my partner Mike calls Jim Clayton's number on his self uh, on his business card. Jim Clayton picks up. He's in Las Vegas. It's his cell phone. Jim says, "Oh, I remember you guys. Don't worry about it. Uh, we'll get this done." So. 30 minutes later, I get a call back from the loan officer. He says, okay, we, we got your loan approved. You know, whatever Jim said to the the loan committee worked. And, you know, those are the first three projects we did. So it was a little nerve wracking. Unbelievable. The day before you're leaving for a honeymoon. Yes. <laughs> All in, came uh, through. So in Italy or something. Gonna fold. Yes. You're going to go on the honeymoon. And then Jim Clayton coming through from Las Vegas. Yeah, great guy. That's an awesome story. And I, I will follow it up. I'd started a charity at the time called First Chance, and we took kids from uh, kind of poor neighborhoods and uh, sent them on study and volunteer abroad programs. And Jim wrote a check for $15,000 to our uh, charity after we got the loans done. And and by the way, on our honeymoon, we brought two kids from the Lawndale neighborhood to a world camp in in Prague with us as part of our honeymoon for the first half. So it all kind of... Worked together. <laughs> Only Rob going, taking underprivileged children running in uh, in Europe uh, for his honeymoon. That's a great story. Have you ever spoken with Jim Clayton since? Um, gosh, I don't think I have. No. So, I'm sure he remembers you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> have you ever seen any banks like that since? No, no. But um, I did. I was inspired by what he was doing. I I did talk to the bank again, and they've now focused their giving on inside of Tennessee. So I don't know if today he would have given the money for our organization, but, uh, you know, he's still... Well, it was used for development in Tennessee. So the dollars were being reinvested into the community. Well, yeah. I mean, now it would be like if you had... uh, if my first chance was taking kids from Tennessee to somewhere else, he would probably give the money, but he's just kind of focused where he wants to give his money, which makes sense yeah. to make a greater impact. Right. Is that typical that you would use local banks for funding for your projects? Is that changed since the market has turned around? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, you know, in 2010, let's call it, we had a fully pre-leased property in suburban Buffalo, New York, Aspen Dental and Chipotle. Uh, 
talk to banks here. They couldn't go to New York and, and finance it. They, they said the regulators wouldn't allow them to. Then you talk to the banks in New York um, and they said, well, we need locally based borrowers. So literally, I mean, we talked to, I don't know, 20, 30 banks on this project that was fully pre-leased to credit tenants. Great return. I mean, it was probably an 11% return on costs. Couldn't get a bank to, to lend on it, period. So um, in the downturn, it was like if you had a relationship with a local bank that somehow was still mildly active, they might have gone and traveled with you to some extent. We didn't have those relationships. We were really out of luck. Um, fast forward to today, I think the best method for being a developer or borrower based in one market who's going to invest money elsewhere, borrow elsewhere, is to find a good um, hometown bank that's willing to travel. Um, we just got a loan commitment with a bank in Texarkana, Texas for a project we're doing in Texarkana. Yeah. Um, we've done some stuff downstate Illinois with a bank that's based down there. So oftentimes those little banks in the local markets are... Um, more competitive on cost, but just the ease of having one bank locally that says, all right, we trust you. We'll finance you across the country. Um, seems to be the best bet right now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you have to work hard to establish that relationships in order to get there. So you travel all over the country looking for sites. Is that normally driven by your clients or is that something that you just, you like to find good locations and then find a client or a business that would uh, be a good fit for that, that good locations you find? Oh, what's your, what's your process on that? We like to say, excuse me, that it's uh, driven by clients. Sometimes the clients, I don't think know that they're quote driving us. Um, it's like, sometimes we might just pick up a tidbit of information in a conversation and say, Hey, let's go attack this and find an opportunity. You know, it was a broker or a tenant saying we needed a store here. Sometimes a tenant will say, Hey, you, uh, Quattro, we want you to be our developer in this little region or this city, go find us a site. And the best of all that is when a tenant says, we want you to buy this particular site um, and we'll lease it from you. And particularly if it's freestanding, you know, that makes it very easy. But um, a lot of times it's just, it's a mixture of both. We had a, uh, a client recently that expressed some interest possibly in um, uh, opening some new locations in sort of the Tennessee, Eastern Tennessee, Western Virginia area. So we went and spent three days looking for opportunities for them there, calling ownership, putting together a report of what might be available as development opportunities. And we brought it back and they were like, yeah, we're not really interested in the moment. We changed our mind and that happens often. So then it's, you know, some of those trade areas that we were in had just good retail sites. And we looked, hey, you know, here's another tenant that we've done work with that is in this city. They're not in that city. Why don't we, you know, we can buy this thing at X price. Let's present it to them. Let's maybe put it under contract, draw up a site plan. Maybe we'll even... Uh, you know, then give a listing to a local leasing agent to see if they can find other tenants. So it, it, it's never the same, but it certainly makes it easier when it's uh, a, a tenant or a client, you know, same, same thing really um, telling us where they want to be. 
Certainly. Certainly. So if you go and you, you locate, you see a good spot, you're like, this is on a, a great corner and uh, would be a great location for X business. Um, how do you go about finding out who even owns it? Are there times, is it always places where there's for sale signs or do you times where you're just calling people up, shaking on trees, seeing what falls out? Um, it's definitely more... <laughs> properties that are not on the market, not actively for sale, um, that tend to lead to oppor development opportunities. The further we've come along in the cycle, the more so that's true because almost everything good's been picked over. Um, we've had properties that, you know, were a Walmart outlaw with the for sale sign that turned into good opportunities, but I think they're the exception rather, rather than the rule. Um, in terms of how we go about figuring out who owns things. That's something that's changed in the last 10 years. I remember going to the Cook County recorder's office and like opening up plat books and t taking Old down school, parcel right? numbers and then having to go to like a different office to get who owned it. And I mean, it was, I remember buying a scanner pens like 12 years ago so we could scan the plat books cause they wouldn't let you take photocopies in the, in the right. recorder's office or whatever. So, you know, now there's apps, you know, whether it be LoopNet, CoStar, some title companies have apps where you can very quickly hone in on a, on a map-based product and, and say, this is the property, who owns it? And something will come up. So that's what I used to spend a lot of time doing, me and Mike, um, and then, you know, sending a letter or calling the property owner and just asking if they'd sell the property. We have... Uh, brought in other people to do that sort of for us now where we identify the property and then give it to one person to figure out who owns it and somebody else to call it and have a system for following up and we don't get responses. And as you'd imagine, I mean, most of the answers are no, but, uh, you know, and then there's a lot of yeses at prices that don't make sense. And every once in a while, there's one that they'll sell at a price that makes sense. So Right. So I, I imagine you have to have a lot of coals in the fire going at, at each time. I mean, you must be looking at properties all over the place, having people call, try to f do research, you know, court records, trying to figure out who owns what. Maybe, I mean, you must have multiple sites going at one time just so you can get, you know, one project going. Yeah, I mean, that's why we travel is we try to always be looking at something new so that somebody else can be calling on that, you know, so then we're off looking somewhere else while that's being researched and called on. And then as we review the information, um, you know, any given time, we usually do have 10, 20, up to 30 properties under contract. Um, you know, maybe three times that we've made offers on things that just didn't make sense. And probably 20 times that things that we've looked at and just can't buy or passed on without making any kind of attempt to buy. So it's, you definitely have to keep turning over rocks in our business to find the right things. And, and we do do things differently than I think most developers um, in all asset classes, I think rely more on brokerage relationships and to bring them opportunities. We work a ton with brokers in different capacities, but <clears throat> it's not necessarily the sourcing of a deal. You know, I'm not just looking in my inbox at opportunities and you know, analyzing them. It's a much more of a, a focused approach to finding the opportunity. 
and you hit the pavement quite a bit. I mean, between the amount that you run, 2,200 outdoor miles, and the amount of travel you do, you know how they say boxers are pound for pound the best fighters? I bet mile for mile, you've seen more of this this country than 99% of the population. Maybe truck drivers could compete. But I don't yeah, know what are the yeah. profession between your running and your... Your, how often you're out traveling around, uh, you got to be up there. No, when you look at the breadth of what we see, I mean, you look at even a truck driver, I'm sure they have more miles, but, you know, their interstate miles were getting off and looking at, you know, the highway and the local road to see the retail trade areas. And then when you add in my running in the morning is usually very locally focused, neighborhood focused, because I don't think we've ever stopped to go to like a museum or a landmark or anything sort of during the day. So any, I take my mornings running if I want to go see the, you know, the Liberty Bell or, you know, whatever there might be in that local town. Um, I, I've seen the Eiffel Tower in Paris, Texas. You know, I've seen. Uh, <laughs> How does it stack up? Uh, well, it was like two in the morning. So it was uh, the Eiffel Tower by night. Um, did not quite live up to the one in Paris, France, but uh, hey, uh, Texas is a strange place. They, they have a Stonehenge in Texas out in uh, at the University of Texas Permian Basin in uh, Odessa, Texas. So it's a mini uh, Stonehenge. So you really don't need to travel nice. the world if you've just gone to Texas. It reminds me of the Johnny Cash song, I've Been Everywhere. <laughs> hearing you talk about it. You know, a couple minutes ago, you said one little nugget that I caught on, which is you said all the best, you said something to the effect of all the best places are gone. And uh, that sort of implies that five, 10 years ago, there were more opportunities available. It sort of implies that it's a little bit harder to find those those good opportunities now. You want to, can you speak a little bit about the market right now? Yeah. Um, a perfect example is the restaurant chain Ruby Tuesday. I think people have been eyeing their real estate for quite some time. They have pretty good real estate and no offense to, you know, the Ruby Tuesday founders, but the, you know, it's, it's lacking a bit, I think in terms of product of what, uh, I don't see a lot of, you know, millennials in Ruby Tuesday, uh, going through the salad bar line. So, uh, we've been, you know, eyeing those opportunities for uh, a long time. And then just recently they've closed a lot of them. And on that list were properties that we've identified for years as being great opportunities that we could just buy them. And when we pursue them at the time, it was always kind of a no, no, no. Well, they all go on the, you know, a list comes out and it goes out to, pretty much anybody who I ever inquired about a Ruby Tuesday. And so we were excited, um, thought it could be some opportunities, but you know, we offer on, um, a handful of them. Some of them we make full price offers on and we're told there's three, five, 10 other offers on the property, you know? And it, wow. at that point, it's just like, what's, what's the point? So you know, I don't want to be just the guy who offers more and then has to go back and just get more rent from our tenants and, uh, or, you know, worse, just take a return that really is not uh, justified for the risk that goes into trying to develop a property. Right. So we, um, we have one that we're moving forward on out of, you know, I, I think we looked at 20, 30, 40 of them. Um, 
so that that's what makes it difficult when there are opportunities come about now. However, this is 2010 and the same thing happened. I think we could have, if we could have found the money, which was the problem back then was just finding the money, we would have probably bought five or 10 of these things. You know, now we'll buy one because there's so many people out there looking for it. So there'll be the next, you know, in the retail space, the next tenant that has good real estate to, to go away. Um, but if we're in the same market, it's gonna be hard to justify paying for this stuff. Right, and is out parcels sort of those Ruby Tuesdays, those old blockbuster videos? Is that sort of uh, in type of use or type of land that you look for quite a bit for your tenants, it's for the your ty- clients? Yeah. It's a type of uh, it's definitely the type of property that we we look for. I mean, we are usually developing. Um, you know, one or two acre sites down to a half an acre. Right now we're developing a couple of larger sites, but they're still broken up kind of into multiple out parcels rather than uh, a big box center or a grocery anchored center. Um, so yeah, the, the, the challenge is <clears throat> quick service restaurants are doing very well right now. There's a ton of them. They're very active. They pay good rent. Um, the mattress stores had a great run, you know, doing the same. But all these tenants that were really active seem to be t- looking for the same real estate. Well, because of that, I think a lot of developers, you know, were looking for the same thing. So, and what really has become difficult is that yeah, the same thing happened in the, in the previous cycle. You have guys who are more broker types, you know, start getting into the development business. So they add to the... Uh, supply of yeah. developers. And then you have a lot of guys who used to do larger projects and those just aren't getting done. You know, Target's not opening new stores. Walmart's not opening new stores. Some, some of these guys are doing some grocery stores, but those guys are kind of moving down into the, this space that, that we're developing in. So there's just a ton of people looking to do the same thing where, again, a handful of years ago, there were other challenges, but there were much, uh, there, were, there were fewer people looking at the opportunities. So normally I, or often I think of you taking um, the dirt and building buildings that match your clients' needs. Uh, when you say that you're looking at Ruby Tuesday's lands, are you also taking existing structures and doing redevelopments or rehabs of the structures to suit another use? Yeah, I mean, when I say Ruby Tuesday, um, I'm looking at it almost exclusively from the land value with the building being a liability because it's just going to cost us money to knock it down. Yeah. We've purchased two properties out of our, all our developments um, where we reused the building. One was in suburban Portland. It was FYE music that we were able to uh, demise the space and put in tennis paying higher rent than they were paying for the whole thing. The other was in Peru, Illinois, where it was an old Rex audio that the, the person who owned it had put AT&T in half and hadn't leased the other. So we got a tenant for the other half and were able to increase the return with, you know, some cosmetic fixes to the outside of the building. But other than that, it's been all ground up development. Interesting. One thing that I've always wondered is, so I've sort of answered one question that I had about walking, about how you go through the country and you find financing. You just, I picture you just knocking on doors of banks, local banks. But so if you're going to Texas, you're going to Tennessee, where do you find the contractors to build it? Is that in-house? Do you bring your contractors along or do you source things locally? How do you, along with that, where do you find the materials to build the buildings. Is that all local? I mean, how do you bring that you're a Chicago-based company, Oak Park, or Oak Brook, I mean. So, 
how do you find a contractor to do your your siding in uh, in Texas? I, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm picturing myself like managing a bunch of lumberjacks, uh, like cutting down trees for the supplies <laughs> yeah. for our building. Um, I have no idea where they literally buy the materials. Um, which I know is not really your question. I'm just thinking of one contract we just signed. It's an out parcel for a Menards and they do require you to spend X amount of your construction materials at their store. So, I mean, I'm sure the guys who build our stuff shops on the same places that you would uh, fix up your house. But um, <clears throat> as it relates to contractors, we are typically using a local contractor. We don't have an in-house uh, contracting company. We've talked about it, but I'm trying to make my life more simple, not more difficult. And, um, that seems like certainly increasing the difficulty level. We have an in-house construction manager. I'll, I'll call it for lack of a better term, although his title is better than that. So if he listens that day, next time I'll say what his actual title is. Um, we also have an in-house civil engineer who does not typically do actual engineer drawings, but he uh, is able to. He used to be our engineer outsourced. We brought him in to handle kind of uh, a lot of pre-construction and planning. But our head of construction um, has worked for 30, 40 years in the industry, so he does know some contractors in these markets that are a place to start. But really, it's going to this blue book, kind of what our local contractors, getting a list, maybe calling the city, hey, who's active contractors here? Um, looking at their website and qualifying them with a phone call and then bidding it out to two, three, four, five local contractors. And you can get a dud in there. We have, um, it's no fun, but, um, I think the pricing is more competitive using somebody locally than bringing somebody from Chicago everywhere in the country. I think it'd be a little bit different if we were building the exact same thing everywhere. If we were a program developer for Dollar General, that might work or something, but you know, everything's a little bit different. And I think the relationships between the subs and the generals are more locally, you know, focused than some guy from Chicago coming into Lubbock, Texas and talking to electricians and getting the best number that way. financial, investment, legal, or other professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your own financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center or Shank Annis Tepper Campbell or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the individual capacities of the host and guests. All opinions on this podcast are rendered based on specific facts and under certain conditions and subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to for use in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceedings.